0: is an on-hole presentation of SF Lit Joust 2020. It was recorded before a live audience on January 19th, 2020 at Asphalt Jungle Books in San Francisco. Our first reader is Rain DeGray with Hog Tie Me in the Library, Please.
1: Sexuality is not black and white. It is not nearly as binary as we used to believe. If anything, it is stocked in infinite shades of gray. For those who find that they cannot pack their sexuality neatly into one of two socially acceptable boxes, that messy sprawl can cause a lot of soul-searching and occasionally obsessive behavior. Think of sexuality as a water balloon. When the standard old in-and-out won't do, you seek other outlets. As you put pressure on the water balloon, that water has to shift elsewhere. And sometimes that shifted water means you end up hogtied on the floor of my library. I met Sam at a writing workshop. He had published a few books that I had quite enjoyed, and when I saw that he was teaching a workshop on writing, I quickly signed up. I had no idea what I was really signing up for. When I entered the room where the workshop was happening, he stopped mid-sentence and made a beeline for me. That sort of thing is harder to get away with these days. There's a lot of talk of consent and ethics, and someone stopping mid-workshop to abruptly begin nuzzling one of the attendees would be met with some serious side-eye. But back in the day, things were a little different. I had an author whose work that I had respected evidently be so dazzled by me that they stopped in the middle of a workshop to use my breasts as a pillow. To be fair, They do make a nice pillow. What I did not know is that I was about to undertake a multi-year journey into the world of fetish. Sam had some very specific and exacting fetishes. I did not know at the time that he was constantly on the hunt for women that could provide him with his specific fetishes, but the obsessive nature of his endless quest became more obvious to me over the years. He was pathologically opposed to intercourse. Not only was sex something that he didn't have an interest in, the mere concept made him deeply uncomfortable. The water balloon of his sexuality manifest in other ways. He needed to be dressed in lingerie, Hogtied and have his nipples pinched. A nipple pinch in bondage while wearing a dress was how he fucked, and he couldn't get enough of it. It didn't matter how much lingerie clad bondage that he got, he always wanted more. I was added to his roster of women in various cities that he was able to convince to hogtie and dominate him. The nipple pinching was unlike anything I had ever encountered before. I would pinch his nipples until they bled and scabs formed. I would pinch his nipples until my knuckle joints seized up and I would have to stop because I was hurting my hands. His scabbed nipples would catch and tear on shirts And after spending some time with me, he would have two bloody spots on his t-shirt as we walked down the street. People would notice now and then, but in the city, you don't question why someone has on a bloody nipple shirt. Maybe it's a fashion statement of some sort. Maybe they're a really aggressive runner. He would flaunt his bloody abused nipples through his white t-shirt with joy. I had wanted our interactions to be based a bit more around what I thought was our biggest mutual interest a love of writing. He only wanted to focus on his love of nipple pinching. I ended up spending years off and on pinching his nipples whenever he came into town and got to see close up what an intensely focused fetish looks like. Sam traveled and moved. One could say compulsively, always looking for something that was a better fit than where he was currently. Whenever he was in town or at a location close to me, he would get in touch so I could provide him with some more of that lingerie bondage that he craved so strongly. I eventually cut him off because my finger joints ached and I was deeply bored of the whole thing. That's the thing about a fetish they can become incredibly specific to the exclusion of everything else. The only thing he was interested in was dress-wearing, hog-ties, and nipple-pinching. That's it. Nothing else. Over and over and over again. It obviously hit the right wiring in his brain and was what he needed. But while it was no doubt thrilling for him on his end... After a while, it becomes mind-numbingly formulaic and boring for the person dishing it out. That is what a fetish looks like in action. If you don't have it personally, you are not going to be laser-focused on it to the exclusion of everything else. I didn't dream of pinching someone's nipples bloody until my joints seized up in little claw hands and throbbed for hours on end. Without also having the fetish... I ended up eyeing the clock and trying to accumulate enough hogtie time to leave him satisfied. He was never satisfied, though. His fetish was a black hole of need that he could not keep filled. How Sam ended up hogtied in my library years after I'd cut off his sessions was entirely accidental. He had moved out of town and found other people to tie him up and walk him through his mommy issues. We hadn't parted on bad terms. I had just stopped supplying the only thing he was interested in. An unexpected text let me know that he was back in town and wanted to revisit my rope for old time's sake. I didn't have anything in particular planned for that evening, and it's always nice to keep your rope skills sharp, so I said, sure, why not, when he asked if I was available that evening. Sam was one of those people who avoided cars and relied on public transportation. I set up for him to take the BART to me, and I would come pick him up. I told him the only BART station that I knew the name of, and told him it was the last BART station on the line. It wasn't the last BART station on the line. It was the second to last. But remember, I can get lost going to the corner store. Sam showed up quivering at the last BART station, and I'm at the 2nd last BART station looking for him. He's describing what he can see on the phone to me, and I'm describing what I can see, and it takes us a while to realize we're not even in the same location. I'm sure some part of him had to be incredibly frustrated at how abysmal I am with directions. But I was the man. I was holding, and I had what he wanted. He was going to do what he needed to do in order to access what he craved, jump through the hoops of my lousy direction-giving if there was a hogtie at the end of it. Stay right there, he panted. I'll take the BART down to you. By the time he doubled back to the second-to-last station and got in my car, he was sweating. Well, he was always a little damp and sweaty. It was just more pronounced. I recognized the look in his eyes. I'd seen it before on street corners when someone is waiting for something that they really, really need. The 15-minute drive back to my house was essentially silent. He didn't have much to say. He hadn't looked me up after all these years to have a conversation with me. When we got to my house, the husband was playing video games on the couch. I briefly introduced Sam to him as the person I was about to pop in a dress and hogtie. Have fun, the husband said, and went back to battling post apocalyptic dragons and muttering about hit points. I led Sam into the library and laid down a yoga mat next to my rope bag. He eagerly climbed onto it and assumed the position. It was just like old times the same tie, the same nipple pinching, the same routine. If anything, it was more boring than before because he wasn't even able to keep up the pretense of me as anything other than a fetish dispenser giving him the dopamine that he craved. When it was all over, he changed back into his clothing and walked past the husband who was still hacking away at the video game. I drove him back to the BART in silence while he surfed his phone, probably looking for other people in town that were available to tie him up. He got out of my car and headed into the BART station with barely a backward glance. It was a booty call where nobody had sex or an orgasm. Instead, I was tying a relatively well-known cross-dressing author in my library while my spouse played video games in the living room. That was the last time I ever tied him up. But I still think about it now and then. I still think about how a fetish can become an all-consuming focus that pushes everything else aside. Sam eventually got put on a list of men with troubling behavior, and it had negative effects on his career. I was just one of many women that he was using as a free prodom, and some of the unwilling recipients of his fetish were pretty unhappy at being on the receiving end of his desires. There is nothing wrong with having fetishes. Fetishes can be thrilling activities. But, like with all things, moderation is key. When you start doing things to such excess that you are engaging in unhealthy behaviors, when you find yourself on a list, it might be time to look in the mirror. All I can do is hope that he's been willing to put in the work to change his behavior and be better in the future fingers crossed my fingers don't miss all of that pinching however that level of nipple torment is hard on the joints
0: call today eager <laughs> gentlemen
2: and we'll get your free trial of FaceShell to you right away.
3: And welcome back to everyone's favorite Radio quiz show, What's My Fetish? Now once again, here's your host, Chuck Rose.
2: Thank you, Bill Peets. For those of you just joining us, unfortunately, our last contestant definitely didn't have what it takes to appeal to the sapiosexuals out there. He failed to get a single question right, so wasn't able to win the lovely ficus we wanted to give him for his dendrophilia. It's really a shame because it really is a lovely little tree. Let's hope our next contestant can do better. Bill, which audience member do we have coming to the stage?
3: Matilda Kent of Moose Lake, Minnesota.
2: All right, Matilda. Come on down as we continue to play What's My Fetish. Hi there, Matilda. How are you today?
1: Great, Chuck. So excited to be here.
2: Well, that's what we like to hear. Now we're going to give you five questions. And if you can get three correct, You'll get the prize behind the curtain over there, which relates to the fetish that you disclosed to us before the show. Are you ready?
1: I am!
2: Okay, for your first question, I hope you're a Douglas Adams fan. 30 seconds on the clock. It could be argued that the Emelian Major Cow might have what fetish?
1: Okay, okay. A uh, Cow, Amelia Cow. I think that was the animal at the restaurant, the end of the universe that wanted to be eaten. Oh I know this uh uh, uh Ten
2: seconds on the clock.
1: For our fulia!
2: Yes, Vararophilia. The erotic desire to be consumed by, or sometimes to personally consume, another person or creature. Good job, Matilda. One down and four to go. Are you ready? Yes! Let's do this! Okay, for the next challenge, spin the big wheel of fetish. Ooh, it looks like you got celismophilia. Matilda, you have 30 seconds to define celismophilia.
1: My grandfather on my mother's side was Greek, so I know that celismo means stammering, so, uh, turned on by stammering? Yes,
2: celismophilia is a sexual arousal <laughs> to people who stutter or stammer. Matilda, you're doing great so far. Coming fast at you is question number three. If you have stygiophilia, you would most likely engage in a lot of sinful acts because you are turned on by what?
1: Doing bad things? Um... Breaking the Ten Commandments. Devil worship. Satanism. Ten seconds on the clock. Making Jesus cry.
2: I'm sorry. You're out of time. You are so close with Satanism. It's getting turned on by hellfire or damnation. Stygophilia. Sexual arousal at the thought of hellfire or damnation. Not to be confused with picatophilia which is sexual arousal from performing an act believed to be sinful. Sorry, you got that one wrong. Let's move on to question number four, which is a multiple choice question. And here you go. After Lieutenant Dan came back from Vietnam, you find him irresistible, but your attraction fizzles a little when he gets his new legs. Do you have a Acrotomophilia or apotemnophilia?
1: Oh, this is a hard one. Um, I like them better without the legs. Um, abasiophilia? No,
2: I'm sorry. The correct answer was acrotemnophilia, which is, of course, a strong sexual interest in amputees. Abasiophilia is the attraction to people with impaired mobility, especially those who use orthopedic appliances such as leg braces, orthopedic casts, or wheelchairs. So you would have probably liked Lieutenant Dan more after he got the new legs if you had abasiophilia. The last one, apotemnophilia, is an overwhelming or obsessive desire to have one or more of your own body parts removed or amputated? That was a tricky question to be sure. All right, one final question. Get this one right, and the prize behind the curtain will be yours. Are you ready? Give it to me, Chuck. Okay, Matilda. This next question is a secret celebrity call-in question. Mystery caller, are you there?
3: Yes. Yes, I'm here.
2: Okay. Matilda is ready and waiting. This one is for the game. Tell her what your fetish is. Hello, Matilda. I'm rooting for you, so I hope you get my fetish right.
1: So do I. What is your fetish?
2: Well, it's not something I discuss very often. But I've always had a penchant for klishmophilia. Can you tell me what klishmophilia is? Enemas!
1: You get sexually aroused by giving or receiving enemas.
3: Yes, in my case, I prefer to receive. But you are 100% correct. Congratulations.
2: Yes, Matilda, congratulations. That was three correct answers, which means you win your prize. Bill Peets, tell Matilda what she's won.
3: Well, Matilda, it's a bag of gravel. Yes, to satisfy your lithophilia, it's a 50-pound bag of Shamrock Select Gravel. Shamrock Select Gravel is a perfect general-use stone that can be used in any number of different applications. It is perfect for landscaping, walkways, patios... Any project where gravel of this size is needed, and perfect for tickling that itch only a hard chunk of igneous can cure.
1: That is a fucking sexy bag of rocks. I can't wait to get it home and cover myself with it in the tub. Congratulations
2: again, Matilda. We want to thank all our contestants for playing with us today and everyone in the studio audience. We hope you'll join us next time for another fun-filled episode of What's My Fetish?
0: And now a word from our sponsor. Previously, on Dirty Talk After Hours. After hours. Yeah, are you ready for this final volley? I'm ready. All right, let's, let's do, do it. This. All right, hunker down. Oh shit! It looks like they're regrouping. Ah! What are they doing over there? Oh crap! Oh! Incoming! Uh, Turn a little bit more and take another half step back. Half step, no, uh, no. Say hi to Moriarty for me! Dirty Talk After Hours. Available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning. Hey, everybody, this is Chris and Rain. And if you do want to join us for the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, we would love to have you along. It's a weekly podcast that we do on Patreon. Go to patreon.com backslash dirty talk podcast and we'll give you an earful each and every Monday morning. Both of your ears full. Yes. Two ears full every Monday morning. Sometimes we go on adventures. Sometimes we talk about the
1: weird news of the day. It's a never-ending party, my friends. Join <laughs>
0: us. So if you want to support this podcast and encourage us to keep doing the awesome job we're doing and get bonus episodes every week, go to patreon.com backslash duty talk podcast. See you all there. From the dark of the desert, the hits just keep on keeping on. It only gets crazier, my cool cats and kittens, because now we're serving up a palate cleanser feet and nasty eyes throughout history. Strap in and buckle up your seatbelts. So here we go.
1: You've heard me describe sexuality as a water balloon before, where if you put pressure in one place, that water is going to shift somewhere else. Lest you think this is an inaccurate metaphor, I'm ready to back it up with science. I have studies and everything. In specific, our topic today is how outbreaks of STIs are tied to increases in foot fetishes. Foot fetishes are one of the most common fetishes out there And everything from perfectly pedicured toes, to stinky, dirty feet, to heels, to stockings, to foot jobs, all fall under the wide umbrella of foot fetish. You can be incredibly passionate about stinky sneakers, but a six-inch heel will leave you cold. You could only lust after a foot if it has the perfect shade of red toenail polish and is clad in fishnet stockings, but a dirty foot does nothing for you. The point is, foot fetishes come in a wide range of flavors and styles.
0: What does this have to do with STI epidemics?
1: I'm so glad you asked. As it turns out, throughout human history, whenever there was a significant STI epidemic, there would follow a rise in foot fetishes. Here comes the science. Researchers published a paper in psychological reports showing a direct connection between the incidence of sexually transmitted disease and the promotion of foot sex as a deterrent. In 1975, the Governor's Justice Commission in Pennsylvania started reviewing every porn magazine sold in the state and counting the number of incidences, different sexual behaviors and pictures appeared. The authors reviewed the most popular porn magazines that weren't geared toward any specific population or body feature and count the numbers of foot-oriented photos between 1965 and 1994. The number of incidences were roughly six to seven from 1965 to 1976. Decreasing to 3 from 77 through 85. Then increasing exponentially to 30 in 1994. These surges were tied into the AIDS epidemic. This study is also proof that being a scientist is not just standing around in lab coats and watching mice. Sometimes it involves buying a bunch of porn magazines, and seeing how many of them have feet. Because, you know, science and toes. They realized they were on to something and continued their studies. By comparing the literature corresponding to the outbreaks of STDs with other times in history, they found the romantic literature included references to women's feet as objects of beauty. Over the previous millennia, there have been four distinct episodes of increased foot fetishism tied to STI epidemics. In the 13th century, crusaders returning from the Holy Land brought back a gonorrhea epidemic, and what followed was a surge, of erotic feet references in available literature. Poets waxed eloquent about the female foot and in the bestseller of medieval times, The Romance of the Rose, there are copious and detailed references to the petal aspect of the female anatomy. According to the poetry of the time, the ideal female foot was white, narrow, with high arches and long, straight toes. The Roman foot with a long, first toe was preferred. By the end of the gonorrhea epidemic, literature reference to the sexy foot had lessened noticeably. In the 16th century, with the outbreak of syphilis reappeared another interest in foot fetish. The movement seemed to start in Spain and then move to Italy before engulfing the whole of Europe. Painters specialized in the female foot with toe cleavage and partially covered feet became the voyeuristic mark of the time, enjoyed by both sexes. The long second toe became popular, Uh, the Greek foot, which I have. My feet are 16th century gold and clothed prostitutes prated before potential customers, unshod. Who cares what her ass looks like? Let me get a gander at those feet. Foot fetish remained popular until the treatment of mercury provided a primitive cure for syphilis, and then it waned out, much less toe cleavage to go around. In the 19th century, when a second epidemic of syphilis reappeared, this seemed to mirror another interest in foot fetish. Brothels began to specialize in foot fetishes. Victorian schools of painting included the idealized female foot. In the developing area of photography, to avoid those Victorian sensibilities, the female foot was excluded. Men could get away with having their boots exposed, but women's feet were covered by dresses or shawls or cropped out entirely. Heaven forbid you would see a woman's foot, the next thing you know there would be anarchy and toe sucking in the streets. In the 20th century, the rise of AIDS also tied to increased foot fetishism and resulted in those Pennsylvania scientists needing to go out and buy all of those porn magazines. As a species, we have an innate desire to seek out sexual gratification. That's how we ended up with over 7 billion of us on this planet. For most of us, it is a deep and driving desire that shapes much of what we do. During epidemics, that desire gets shifted as we seek out more non-traditional methods of sexual gratification when the traditional methods are less safe.
0: Stay with us, we got Nancy Sinatra's. These boots are made for walking. Coming up next. Uh
1: The president refused to comment on what the emperor penguins were doing in the Lincoln bedroom, but did remind the American people that contrary to popular belief, they do not mate for life, but are serially monogamous. For NBR News in Washington, this is Christina Craig. It is two minutes till midnight.
4: In Weed, California, you're listening to This, That, and Another Thing. I'm your host, Jared Mullins. Has America jumped the shark? Is, as Guy Bohr famously claimed, everything that once was directly lived become mere representation? And have we completed the decline from being into having and having into merely appearing? To answer these questions, we're joined today by Professor Ainsley Hayward, Chair of the School of Marxism and Media at Coos Bay Community College in Oregon. He just released a new book arguing that Western culture has irrevocably fallen into commodity fetishism and is now a caricature of the situationalist society of the spectacle. Professor Hayward, thank you for being with us today.
0: Hi, Jared. Thanks for having me on.
4: Before we open up the phone lines, I wanted to start off by getting a quick rundown on the core of what your thesis is. What kind of fetish is a commodity fetish?
0: Well, Jared... What Karl Marx was referring to as a fetish isn't what we commonly refer to today as a fetish. That is, a form of sexual desire in which gratification is linked to an abnormal degree to a particular object, item of clothing, part of the body, or action. His reference to fetish is more in line with the original meaning of the word. He borrowed the concept of fetishism from the cult of fetish gods by Charles de Brose, which proposed a materialist theory of the origin of religion. So, in a sense, a fetish is an object that holds mystical or supernatural powers. If you think about what most people consider to be a fetish, what they're referring to is something that isn't commonly held as sexual, but has the almost magic-like power to elicit a strong sexual response from certain people.
4: So what are the supernatural powers that commodities possess and people are fetishizing?
0: To put it extremely simply, it is the assumed value that people ascribe to an object that is not associated to the labor that went into producing it. You see, Marx believed that people gained happiness and contentment from their work and the personal relationships that were formed between people when they shared the fruits of their labor. As he saw it, under the capitalist system, these relationships were lost when people began exchanging goods for money. The value of the object is disconnected from the work that had gone into it, and people became more interested in the exchange of things than the relationship between people.
4: That still sounds very confusing.
0: Let's look at it this way. When you buy a product, its inherent value to you is not in the interpersonal relationship between you and the person that made it for you or the time and effort put into it. You are willing to exchange money for it because of the perceived value you give it. This is most apparent with corporate branding. People buy a certain brand because it complements their idea of themselves be it drinking a specific type of soda, wearing paraphernalia from a certain sports team, or even the operating system in the phone they use. The magic behind the product is the mythos that the marketing forces have imbued it with. Money is exchanged for the object so that through ownership, it will pass these magical properties on to the possessor.
4: I think it's becoming a little clearer. Let's open up the phone lines. Give us a call at 775-387-2278 if you want to get in on the discussion, or message us on social media. While we wait for some questions, let me ask you, in your opinion, why is commodity fetishism a societal issue?
0: The main problem is that it turns the worker into an interchangeable commodity themselves. People no longer care about who produces the good and under what conditions. All they are concerned with is how the object fits into the constructed personality they have chosen to project to the rest of the world.
4: Okay, we've got our first caller, Wayne, from Aurora. You're on the air.
2: Yeah, this all sounds like a lot of bunch of commie crap. There's nothing wrong with being able to buy what I want with my hard-earned
0: dollar and no leftist pinko bastard.
4: Okay, thank you, Wayne. Professor Hayward, do you have a response to that?
0: My real concern about this type of fetishization isn't primarily on the economic side of things. It's how it has crept into all the other facets of our lives. It's how it is eroding all our other interpersonal relationships. How do you mean?
4: How is this affecting our relationships outside of the market for goods?
0: Well, With the rise of the internet, people themselves and all their experiences have become the commodity the whole goal of social media is to exchange life events for a pseudo-currency. As people interact on the platform attempting to collect the pseudo-currency, the website then advertises them tangible products that, according to the information that has been scraped from the personal details that have been shared on the site, best fit with their chosen identity.
4: What do you mean by pseudo-currency? Are you talking about Influencers being paid to rep certain products?
0: No. This new currency is in the form of likes, shares, and follows. These things activate the reward center of the brain with little hits of dopamine in the exact same way as doing drugs or winning money at a casino. Just like gambling, the reward people get from social media is variable. Post a picture or a status update and the amount of interaction it will get is unknown. But every like, comment, and share brings its own little squirt of dopamine so people will stay glued to the site, constantly refreshing to maximize the reward. If they get lucky, they might hit the jackpot and go viral. Certainly, if a person garners enough consistent interaction, it is possible to earn actual currency from the exchange and start selling their life experiences at a higher level. This usually entails carefully curating their lifestyle in the hopes that other people will fetishize them enough to grant them an influencer status. However, even if they're not gaining money that can be exchanged for other commodities, they are still commoditizing themselves for other people's consumption. The saddest part of this whole process is the feedback loop it creates that further degrades our own personal realities. How so? Just like as was initially discussed with commodity fetish, people have separated themselves from the labor that goes into the final product, the posted photo or status update. People don't see the actual day to day life of the poster or the sometimes hundreds of other photos that were thrown away. All they see is the final product of the fetishized perfect life that the poster wants other people to associate with them. This perfectly manicured existence makes other people question their own circumstances, which don't seem to match up with the fabulous lives of others ultimately leading to anxiety and depression. This is when we finally arrive at what the situationists call the spectacle. People are no longer having experiences or living for enjoyment. They are creating the appearance of doing things. This ersatz existence is what they commodify and sell to other people to
4: fetishize. We've got another caller on the line, Lorraine from Hill Valley. You've got a question for Professor Hayward?
2: Hi, thanks for taking my call. I love your show. I'm a longtime listener. I have two questions. First, besides social media, are there other aspects of life that you see this type of commodity fetishism and social spectacle having a detrimental impact? And second, I think our phones have become the most fetishized object in our society. Wouldn't you agree? I'll take my answer off the air.
0: Professor Hayward, your opinions? Well. I would say that this dynamic has infiltrated almost every aspect of our lives, but the other major impact that I see with it is in politics. Our leaders no longer really lead, they just have to have the appearance of leadership. As to cell phones being the most fetishized object, there is a strong argument for that, unquestionably the rise of smartphones has fueled our further descent into the spectacle and given people the ability to document every moment of their lives for consumption. People do have a closer relationship to their phone than to almost any other object in their lives. Most people can't stand to be more than a few feet from it at all times and panic if it becomes temporarily lost. It is difficult definitely a pacifier that is used to fill many gaps in people's lives, but I don't think they are the most fetishized object in society.
4: In your opinion, what is? Money. Money?
0: Money holds a magical sway over everyone's life. You can literally buy and sell people's lives with enough of it. Ask anyone if they want more money and you'll get an emphatic yes ask what they will do with it, and the only possible answer is buy more stuff or give it to other people so they can buy more stuff. Money is the ultimate fetish. It is perceived to have the magical ability to fix almost every problem in our lives. People hold this belief that if only they had enough money, all their problems would be solved. Yet, few people really understand what money truly is or what it represents. How do you mean? When people say they want more money, what they are really saying is that they want more time and energy. Money at its core is a representation of stored time and energy. We don't have enough time and energy in our lives to create all the products we desire. These two things are finite But with money, people can vote for what's most important to them, whether it's the time and energy it took someone else to build a car or the time and energy it takes to prepare a meal. When money was based on gold, it had a closer relationship with this concept. It represented the time and energy it took to remove it from the ground, and its scarcity was emblematic of society's finite access to time and energy. However, now that billions of dollars can be created at the touch of a button, like everything else under commodity fetishism,
4: it has completely lost its original relationship to its production. All right, we've got time for one more question, this one coming from Twitter. Bourgeois Babe 42 wants to know, are you saying that social media has no redeeming benefits?
0: No. It can be perverted and alter our perception of ourselves and the rest of the world, but it also provides us with the incredible ability to instantly share information with people all around the world and can be used as a tool to fight injustice and oppression. What I'm saying is, is bring awareness into your interaction with it. Have experiences that aren't documented for the consumption of others. Don't passively consume it and other media. The spectacle is all around us. Take this podcast you're listening to right now. It's part of the spectacle. I'm not a real professor. This isn't a real radio talk show We're just co-opting a familiar media format in an attempt to satirize social commentary.
4: So we're breaking the fourth wall now, okay.
0: Sure, why not? We might as well be fully transparent with the fact that we're just as much part of the spectacle as anything else. Does it make us better because we're aware of it and trying to use the spectacle to educate other people about the spectacle? I don't know. Probably not. We just want to encourage people to look deeper at it and bring awareness to everything they consume and fetishize in their lives. Also, follow us on the social media platform of your choice. The Dirty Talk podcast can be found on all of them. Give us all the likes, shares, and follows. Or, if you appreciate the time and energy we put into this podcast and you have the means, support us on Patreon, like our honorary producers, Rolf Hansen and his wives. Back to you, Jared.
4: That's all the time we have for today for This, That, and Another Thing. I want to thank our guest, Professor Ainsley Hayward, for joining us. Tune in tomorrow as we explore koalas. Are they the deadbeats of the animal kingdom? Until then, this is Jared Mullins signing off.